We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country on which Plant Heroes was recorded, and we pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Translocating when you know something's going to be destroyed and gone forever, I think is a good thing. You know, I don't want to do it, but I, if it's a choice between just destroying them um, and translocating them, then we, we must translocate, you know. At the end of the day, picking up a plant and moving it from one place to another is one thing. It's trying to put it into a, an environment which you then manage as a natural environment and try to get a population established. Because if you're just picking things up and moving them from one place to another, you're just gardening. It's not simple, it's far from perfect, but it's better than having them run over by the dozer in the first instance and just lost from day one. Now, you've learnt nothing, you've gained nothing, you have the potential for nothing. Um, so, um, you know, that's why we've got the recovery team to demand salvage of every individual. Liza, put a smile upon your face. I want to see you glow, so let your essence shine. Welcome to Plant Heroes. I'm Chantelle, and today we are talking about a type of translocation that isn't often celebrated, or promoted, or heroed but is increasingly used as part of offsetting or approving developments. Under Australia's environmental legislation, when a threatened plant occurs in or near a development, impacts to it are required to be managed or offset, either through moving the plant or growing and planting new ones somewhere else. These are called salvage or mitigation translocations. And this story is about what hasn't worked, what has improved, and what still needs to be done better. There are no traceable records of how many mitigation translocations have occurred, but the teeny plant we are talking about today has the dubious honour of probably being Australia's most salvaged species, existing on the volcanic plain grasslands, which are part of Melbourne's growth corridor. We travelled to Melbourne to meet some of the key members of the team who, over the past two decades, have refined the process of how mitigation translocations occur and how accountable the developers who undertake them need to be. It is far from perfect, but it is improving. Before we get there, though, let's get to know our little plant a bit more and the woman who knows more about it than anybody else. They've got gelatinous fibres in the root. Actually, they, they're like big um, like donuts and they absorb all the water. So they're in pitch black and three degrees. They kept growing. Thought it was one plant, as yeah. you can see. But see, three. And my seed orchard, when they're profusely flowering, the pe- you do. You, it's like a lovely perfume. You get every single thing them. we've done with the cuttings has always failed to send off to do carbon dating to yeah. see if we could age. But it, it really didn't come back very conclusively unfortunately. Fire reinvigorates these plants for some reason. It opens it up, they went, they grew. They didn't actually survive, but they did actually regrow. Suddenly they were alive again. Hi, I'm Debbie Reynolds. Um, I'm the primary conservation officer at Trust for Nature. And I've done a PhD on primaries. I consider primarily it's like a rainforest tree in grassland. Because it's always there. It's um, always got something green on it. It never goes down to the tubers. It's covered in things. Um, heaps of different spiders on it, flies and moths, and bugs, and all sorts of things. It's just like a hive of insect life all over it. 
And actually the name rice flour, the common name rice flour, they think could be due to the sort of shape of the kettle. It looks a little bit like a grain of rice, um, but also the seeds are quite like, like, a, like a, 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 um, a rice, it's not as big as a grain of rice. They're males and female flowers, um, and the females are much more um, sort of um, modest and demure, and they don't have the bright pop of the um, pollen of the male flowers. So the male flowers are often quite in your face, and they stand up with their little anthers, little pops of orange on them, so they're quite obvious. If you're walking across a field and you see them, you'll see the male long before you usually see the female. It's very cryptic to find. Um, it's, it's frustrating. It's a bit like a relationship, really, I suppose. Um, but it's not just with the, it's the grassland. It's not just Pymelia. I love all grasslands and I'm really excited in a grassland to see the flowers, to see the pollinators, the insects. It's, they're so special, they're so rare. Um, each one's unique. Debbie is not just the Pymelia officer with Trust for Nature. She's also on the recovery team a panel advising how best to conserve the species. In her laboratory, Debbie and a small team produce hundreds of plants per year for community groups, councils, urban developers and consultants. Because translocation, offsetting and planting of this species is what enables development to happen. Plant salvage for Pymulus vanescens is basically when we remove old, I know, established plants essentially from an area where they've been for a long time, possibly up to a hundred years or more, and we're moving them to another site and hoping that they will establish in a new site, become part of that population, taking their genetics with them. Um, the soil plug, even if the plant did die, the, the seed is still there, which is really important. And there's a possibility there's a mycorrhizal association. So it's really important to take the, the mycorrhizals, the fungal um, associations with them in that soil plug. But why are they being moved? Because they occur primarily in the volcanic grasslands west of Melbourne. Grassland that once the rocks are removed makes a perfectly easy slate for the development and sprawl. Today, that grassland is critically endangered. Clearly, developers are not conservation organisations. They develop a site and they, if they've got grassland, um, then you'll generally have to do a search around Melbourne for the standard big five species, matted flax lily, striped legless lizard, golden sun moth, if you've got a wetland nearby, growling grass frog, and of course, Pymelia spinescens. Stephen Muick, generally known as Steve Muick, um, senior consultant botanist with uh, Biosis, been working in the Melbourne office for uh, a lazy 26 years. I've been told Pymelia spinescens is my totem plant. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> Why? Um, I remember stopping at a place near north of Stall to relieve myself on the side of the road. Yeah. Pymelia had never been recorded from this area and I was urinating on it. Steve has another special affinity with Pymelia spinescens. He was one of the first people to try and move it out of the way of development back in 1998-99. And he wrote a paper about the methods, which now underpins the best practice methods for all translocations that occur in Melbourne. This best practice document is unique. There are not many other plants that have their own salvage. It became method. a species of interest after we did a job down at the old Williams Air Base and the Air Force was selling out of that site 
And so rather than what was normal for the day was once uh, an area was designated for development, the environment just got bulldozed. We just come up with the idea of, well, how about we pick these things up and um, move them into the reserves. We worked out that there was some um, initial mortality from the shock. We had two methods that we were trying. One where we basically dug the plants out of the ground uh, in a block of soil with um, a ditch witch, which is like a soil chainsaw, and then got a, a backhoe to dig a hole out on one side, put a steel frame over it, whack a steel plate underneath it, pull it out of the ground and then plonk it in a trench and bury it again. <laughs> and then the other one, when we found this other machine, a tree spade, which basically hydraulically pushes spades into the ground and pulls out a cone of soil. And you do that in the place where you want to put the plant and then you throw that lump of dirt away and then you get your plant. And because it's a, a machine and it repeats the same process each time, the plug that you pull out of the ground with the plant in it is pretty much the same size and the same shape as the plug of soil that you pulled out and then you plonk it into that hole and then give it heaps of water. The other tricky thing about the process is trying to do it when the plants are dormant and managing the risk of driving heavy machinery over an endangered grassland, which also causes damage and introduces weeds. To reduce damage, the team developed a method of translocating when the soil was dry. When the soil was dry, because it's basalt soil, you can't get in the, the spades into the ground because the ground's like concrete. But fortunately, the soils absorb water very quickly and very easily and to a great depth. So we'd get a 10,000 litre water truck, pour a bucket load of water over the plant, and when the soil basalt soil's wet, it's like butter, and the spades just go in. And we also learnt that it's not good to leave any gaps in the, in the plug that you put into the ground. So we worked out that if you just got sterile washed sand and um, filled up all the gaps, that stopped the plants drying out very quickly and getting too stressed. These methods sound pretty coarse, but they haven't varied much over the last 20 years. The elephant in the room, though, is do they work? In 2014, Biosis reported on the status of 11 historical translocations, which at that stage only required two years of monitoring. The results were mixed, but hinted that ongoing maintenance could have made things a lot better. At most sites, less than 50% of plants had survived. And at five sites, less than 25%. Only two sites had evidence of recruitment. I suppose when we started with that first project, like with most Australian native plants, we know absolutely nothing about their ecology and I suppose these salvage translocations are as much about learning about the species and learning about the environment that they live in so that you can make better decisions later on. Debbie and Steve both sit on the expert panel for Pimele Conservation, known as the Recovery Team, which over the years has evolved to provide advice on conserving the species, and they coordinate regular meetings with community, researchers, government, and the 22 councils that have Pimelia growing in their areas. Many species in Australia have these recovery teams, groups that provide advice on how to restore or conserve a listed species, but this team is unique because part of their remit includes understanding how the mitigation process works. Debbie estimates around 18 translocations of Pimelia have occurred. But 
isn't certain, as records haven't until recently been provided to them. Likewise, the group doesn't know the outcomes of the translocations. Technically, every year there are monitoring reports produced that track success, but getting a hold of those hasn't always been straightforward. What works, what doesn't work? What should we advise people in the future? That's definitely something that was frustrating a little bit early on in species is we weren't getting any reports on what had happened when we when translocations were done. When I started the recovery team, the consultants say, oh yeah, we write reports and we send them somewhere. I said, really? Oh, who looks at them? Where, where are they? Why can we, where can we get them? But because they're, they're considered commercial and confidence, I think they're written for developers and given to the federal government. I tried finding, no one seemed to know in the federal government where they went either. Yeah, and I, I think this is an issue for all species, I'm sure, that people who need to get the information about what's happened um, don't seem to get that information when they should so that they can learn and we can all learn what, what should be done and advise the future, future translocations. I want to stop and thank Debbie here for sharing this frustration and also acknowledge what the team did to try and rectify that. Making sure that all mitigation translocation plans and monitoring reports are submitted to the recovery team. So we sort of put in a translocation plan that now they have to give their reports to us as well so that we learn from what's going on and we can help support them to get the best outcome for this species, which is what a recovery team should do, (laughs) should be the expert body and should get the information and um, be able to feedback and modify and advise others in the future of what we think might work. To be a cashed up recovery team, not reliant on government funding at all, um, has been a godsend. And even um, the Commonwealth have looked at us as as a potential model for setting up recovery teams. And here's the critical bit. Along with reviewing those plans before they occur and receiving copies of the monitoring report, the team has also made sure the developed plans include a minimum of 10 years maintenance and monitoring if the project is an offset and are looking towards setting a threshold that a translocation must have at least 50% survival. If that threshold isn't reached, then a developer or contractor who's taken over the care of the plants must keep supplementing until there is 50% survival. We have written in conditions that have defined thresholds for survivorship and if those thresholds aren't met then you have to try to reintroduce new individuals from a scenario where you collect seed off the plants before you salvage them and you probably collect seed off the plants after they've been salvaged and moved. They're still the same plants. You're basically trying to salvage part of a gene pool and move it to another location and allow that gene pool to spread into additional plants and if those plants die and if you've got seed from them well then hopefully you'll be able to propagate them and then put those plants into the ground to to make up for the attrition. Um, Unfortunately getting seedlings into the ground has been proved fairly difficult. We have tried cuttings, you can strike cuttings off Pymelia. I think at one stage we put 300 in the ground and we got one to live and for seedlings we've tried scattering seed but again germination events are relatively rare and survivorship events are even rarer. They're very difficult to document. We've gone up to five years worth of monitoring in the hope to be able to get some idea as to whether there are seedlings but even a five-year window is tenuous in trying to identify that. There's a a line to tread between putting a developer on the hook for five years is probably hard enough, you know, putting them on the hook for 10 or 20 
although their EPBC Act approval conditions do run for 20 years. So we're edging our way towards something that's that's going to possibly be able to give us that information. But even in a 20-year window, you can't guarantee you're going to see recruitment. And if you haven't thought it before, I'm going to say it. This sounds like a lot of effort and expense. Steve conservatively estimates at least $1,000 per plant for the translocation, on top of which you need to add in years of monitoring and site maintenance. And the people that do that work aren't developers. The developers generally pay the costs up front, and someone else takes the responsibility. In Melbourne, it's often the local councils. One of the newest translocations with the most rigorous standards, a 10-year maintenance requirement, occurs at Pioneer Park which is managed by Brimbank City Council. I am Will Larson, I'm Land Management Officer at Brimbank City Council and I basically oversee the management of a whole bunch of remnant grasslands across the municipality, of which one is Pioneer Park. So we're an urban council, it's only three hectares, but it is one of our bigger ones. It contains several very threatened species, so um, button wrinklewort, uh, showy podolepis, and what we're here to talk about today, spiny rice flower, Pymelia spinescens, which is just in there. So a component of the population of Pymelia spinescens was translocated into Pioneer Park in 2016, and they are surviving currently at about 38% of what went in. Because the translocation has fallen below 50% survival, we basically want to put more genetics in and more individuals in and hopefully get them to pollinate. <laughs> After 10 years, if the project doesn't have a survival rate of 50%, the developer still has an obligation to have that survival at 50% That's part of the terms. So we will need to supplement and get that survival rate up. It isn't easy to keep plants alive, actually, and the biggest drivers of mortality are lack of water. Water, water, water in the first years. Will suggests watering weekly through summer. And then fire. These grassland systems are adapted to burn every two to three years, and without regular fire, they lose diversity, and there's limited recruitment. It kind of needs fire to be healthy and to promote um, germination of seed and to open up spaces. It's, it's vitally important and it's been part of their, their evolution, you know, for thousands and thousands of years. Some sites, like Pioneer Park, do get frequent fires, the best time being in autumn as part of a regular, cool-burning mosaic. So the fire behaviour in autumn burns. It can be often governed by how much biomass is in the grassland. So when you leave an area unburnt for quite some time, a lot of the time it will travel very uniformly and you just have to minimise the amount of heat you put into it to avoid really doing some damage. But once you're burning a grassland frequently, you start to get gaps in the biomass that become permanent. So then you can talk about the fire behaviour being really ununiform and really sporadic and you, you might just see one patch that just is completely unburnt and that, that's really what we're going for with our fire behaviour. I haven't seen a cool burn or controlled burning so I ask Will what does it look like? Once you get to the stage of having a frequently burnt grassland trickling is a really good way of describing the fire behaviour. You don't really put any heat into it and it just kind of yeah meanders along. 
it looks really calm, I guess. Um, so the, you know, the flames aren't high at all. Ideally, they won't be above waist height. You can get them to below knee height, that's great. And then smoke is really interesting in those nice cool autumn burns. Like you can just walk through it and you don't really cough at all. But these are urban grasslands within metres of houses. And I wonder if it makes residents a bit nervous. Pioneer Park is a very interesting site because it's been burnt quite frequently over the past probably nearly a decade. So the community perception is really they're just sort of used to it and they're happy that it gets done. And then you can get to a point, which I don't know if we're here with Pioneer Park yet, but with other sites, people start to see the flow and effects of a burn. So there's one adjacent landholder to another site that I manage. And when we don't burn the site that year, they'll call up and go, I can't see any flowers. When's, you know, when are you going to do the burn? And that's, that's the sort of community pressure that I think we all love. <laughs> Will, Debbie and Steve strongly emphasise that conservation in situ is best. That means keeping the plants in the ground they came from. But in situations where the environment is trying to gain some foothold against development, offsetting and translocation schemes do have some benefits that traditional conservation programs just don't. Pioneer Park Grasslands, it's one of our best sites and without that offset money, I don't think it would be in the condition that it's in now. When we collaborate with developers, first of all, we gain individual plants to bolster a population that we otherwise didn't have. We might even gain new species into a site. In this case, we might gain extra genetics of a species in the site that has a very low population. And then we also gain funding for work in the site. Any work that we do in the site in relation to these Pimelia spinescens translocations, whether it's weed management or biomass management, does increase the quality of the site as a whole. Mitigation translocations are making people who are developing areas with critically endangered plants provide funds for offsets or for yeah, research, which often we wouldn't ever get. It gives us a chance to, to give something a go, to try something. So you do a plan, you put in things that we want to do, and we actually get a chance to do it on the ground and see if it works or not. And more often than not, things will work eventually. And then with a 10 year time frame, that's fantastic. Steve, after 26 years in the industry and dozens of translocations under his belt, is a bit more pragmatic. And he knows that achieving a high-quality translocation has to start with paperwork, even if it doesn't happen exactly as outlined in the plan, which is approved by the federal government. Comprehensive plans give the species a lot better chance of survival because management and monitoring actions are prescribed and they can be checked by regulators to theoretically make sure that they're occurring. Developers just want their approvals. Regulators, well, experience certainly helps them to approve more effective plans. Um, should say some of the rubbish we've written in the early days, my God. The lawyers get a hold of it, you could drive 10 trucks through and you know, they look at a plan and go, oh, well, I don't have to do anything. It, it doesn't say I need to do anything here. So you know, the developer gets a good lawyer on board and it's sort of like, right, well, I've done everything I need to do, see you later. To be honest, the, the best thing for the developer is for them to sign a cheque and walk away. You just need to know how big that cheque needs to be so that you get the effective result that's the best outcome for the species and the ecology of the community that you're putting things into. And unfortunately, Victoria is going through a very significant extinction event as we sit here. So things aren't looking great. All I can say is, is that um, you know, people look, often look at the approvals process that we get involved in and say, oh, you know, you bloody consultants, you just facilitate development and loss. 
well, I look at it in the context of I deal with people who are prepared to provide offsets for their impacts and provide tens, if not hundreds of times more resources than government does for people to enact management and to learn about um, particular species through on-hands work. When I help facilitate a developer purchase an offset that has to be actively managed and monitored, etc., that sort of stuff doesn't happen in government-run reserves. It just doesn't. They don't do that sort of work. And if they do, um, A, we don't know about it, but B, it's at such a limited extent um, because they look after so much land and it's a bit of a cop-out that they don't have much in the way of staff, but it, it is a measure of the priority that's given to our environment by government. And unfortunately, it's nine-tenths of bugger all. Here it is again, that big question. Have the translocations been a success? Are there self-sustaining populations? Unfortunately for Pymunia at the moment, you'd have to say to this point, um, given that we haven't really observed a seedling survivorship um, post-translocation, in that context, none of it's been successful. But at least, say for example, at least the male plants that we move potentially contributed pollen to the female plants in the naturally occurring populations. And so some of the genetics has at least potentially moved from plants that would have otherwise been lost. And the females that survived, well, they're producing seed. Once they've actually survived the first five years, they're, they're probably in as good a condition as any plant that got there by itself. And, you know, they've got the ensuing decades to produce progeny, um, which I'll probably never see. But anyway, at least they were given the chance. So what's the future for Pymelia spinescence and the grasslands around Melbourne? Under a changing climate, Debbie is worried. I honestly think global warming is having a massive impact. I think that's the problem is the, you know, the elephant in the room that we really haven't had to deal with before. So the plant can live for an extended time once translocated. We honestly think it's actually just um, follow-up management. That's what we think. If it's done better, we have more plants that will survive. But in global warming situation now, where maybe that isn't as easy. I live essentially on a grassland. I've taken my stuff from it and want to do everything I can to make sure that the grasslands um, and all the species in it have a chance of um, being there, surviving. We have a duty of care, I believe, to look after our environment that we live in, that it's there for everybody in the future. But the grassland systems do persist as those tiny pockets and although there is so much uncertainty, people in this sector have to choose to hope for a future where community and natural areas will be integrated and celebrated. And in this case, developers probably have a role to play in that. Pymula is impo really important for the grassland. It's a, it's a cornerstone species that supports lots of other species with it. So when we're looking after Pymelia, we're looking after the grasslands as a totality, which is really important. It's, it's so amazing to think they exist in an urban environment surrounded by houses. And I mean, even this, it's, it's pretty amazing that we have it here. We should be so appreciative and, and be, bring people out here and, and be celebrating that they exist, celebrating the wildflowers, having a festival and a burn party. Um, I think that's special and we should be happy about it. People will celebrate a rainforest, 
they're really happy and they're so proud of it and visitors are there and there's tourism. We could do this in the grasslands too. We just need to make it a bit, put more wild in there, more wildflowers than some of them, um, bring people out here at the right time. And what about Pioneer Park? What is the future of that little remnant pocket surrounded by houses? What I want to see with this site is basically a, a continuing rolling burn program just to keep the biomass low for herb populations. And yet from there, I just want to, I want to see Pymelia spinescens starting to recruit. That's my ultimate goal. <laughs> and, and also um, also just trying to um, bring more herbs in and basically make this, this little urban oasis where the community can see why grasslands are so important and why people in our industry care about them so much. As the sun it warms your core, your blue eyes on the blue sky capture so much more. You don't worry about the clouds, for the rain is welcome too. Every morning the sun rises for you. Every morning the sun rises for you.